Just have a special announcement for my listeners. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for uh, listening. Started off as an experiment in August, but I've had about 2,000 listens of my podcast, and I'm so grateful. I have a special request uh, for my year-end episode 2020, which has been an incredibly interesting year. I plan to do an episode of listener feedback. So what I'd love for you to do is leave me a message, and the link is in the show note, about what you took away. What was one thing after listening to several episodes was the most impactful to you to help that helped you in some way, or was an insight you hadn't thought about before? If you can do that, then I will be sharing some of those insights. You can see that link in show notes. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Navigating Disruption Podcast. I'm your host, Shaquille Barmel. I'm the CEO of Ocean Blue Strategic and partner with The Summit Group. I'm a coach, consultant, and speaker, and I help leaders, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals make an impact through improved performance. In this podcast, I share insights and interviews with interesting leaders to define practical lessons that you can use to make an impact in the face of uncertainty. The fact that Jennifer Jones is the president of the Toronto Library Foundation makes so much sense, almost like it was meant to be. But the truth is that her path to this incredibly important leadership role was not direct. Rather, it was a result of a series of ricochets and unique life experiences. She was raised to be an independent and confident woman, and that was put to the test in high school when her parents packed up to live in India while Jennifer stayed behind to begin her adult life here in Canada. Her search for clarity and meaning led her all over the world, and then finally to the Ivy School of Business, where she and I met. Her warmth, confidence, and sense of humor made an impact on me from day one. Yet, I realize now that I didn't really know her. I am thrilled to have learned more about her in this one-hour conversation than I did in two years together at grad school. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Jen. Hello. How's it going? So good. How are you? Always so great to see you. Likewise. Likewise. I, I was very... just telling my EA. Yeah. I was like, I don't know which is bigger of the Shaquille, his head or his heart. Oh, because that's so lovely. Well, you know, I'm really um, grateful that you and I got a chance to reconnect live in uh, in Toronto. I guess it was yeah. February, right? Yeah, it was. February. It was uh, mid-February. Yeah. Who knew what was going to come in the, in the months ahead? Um I've reflected on that too. We were at uh, MBA together, 1998 to mm -hmm. 2000. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, we probably saw each other a handful of times yep. in, I guess, nine, in 2005. Uh, and then we really haven't connected that much except until earlier this year. What are you doing now? Now I am running the Toronto Public Library Foundation. Yeah. Um, I joined four years ago with a mandate to bring significant growth to the foundation, which exclusively sup, uh, supports Toronto Public Library, which happens to be the biggest and busiest library in the world. Um, and not a lot of people know that, which is why I was attracted to the opportunity. I'd spent the last 20 odd years in corporate moving tangentially. My, my arc was peer corporate over to social responsibility. And then I decided I wanted um, a pure not-for-profit experience. Mm -hmm. Um, as another way to stretch myself and see what I was capable of and also give myself more doors to walk through over mm -hmm. time. 
Um, and so I've been here for four years. And as I said to my board, you know, four years ago, my mandate was to bring growth to the organization. And now because of COVID, it's to save it. Yeah. Yeah. What so a shift. That's what I'm doing. I'm sitting on my couch trying to save a, an organization, which thankfully, because of uh, the love that people have for this library has not been as dire as we had anticipated. Oh, okay. Okay, well, that's well, I'd, I'd love to get into that um, mm. a little bit. So you're running the the foundation. Uh, when you, what was it originally that brought you to do your MBA? I had been in the workforce for five years by the yeah. time I applied, did my GMATs. Yeah. Um, I had spent a few years in Toronto post grad. Uh, university graduation, yeah. working in advertising. And I was very disenfranchised with my introduction into the working world. Mm. I, um, I graduated in 93 in the right in the thick of the recession. Mm -hmm. And so I saw a lot of people much older than me who who seemed very stuck in their lives. They, they were at an organization where they were unhappy for a variety of reasons. Um, they were feeling like they didn't have the opportunity to leave because the market just didn't wasn't wasn't ripe for shifting. So everyone was in this holding pattern. Mm. And I looked at people older than me and went, that's not what I want for myself. I want more choice. I want more options. I want to feel like I'm in charge of my life. Mm -hmm. And um, so I decided to move to Asia and take advantage of being single and footloose and fancy free yeah. without any clear direction, quite frankly, yeah. and felt that by having those adventures and pushing myself into areas that I couldn't possibly anticipate yeah. that I would grow enough and ideally find a career yeah. by staying open to possibilities. So, so I spent went, a few years you, in Asia. You went to Asia without knowing what it is was going to be on the other side or what you're going to walk into. You just well, used a way to spark your creativity. Yeah, as kind of to launch myself. Uh, the backstory to that is I had a really incredible um, childhood and upbringing, very stable. Um, but when I was 19, my parents moved to India. Oh, and they took my younger sister. I didn't know she that. She was a teenager. Yeah. Wow. So I finished high school in my family home while they were already in Calcutta wow. and lived there for the summer and then um, packed up the house and moved myself to university. And a year later, I went to visit my parents in India and traveled a little bit through Asia. And it opened my eyes to the world and the fact that I was this small, small, tiny human in this great big universe. And it was the best gift my parents could have ever given me because it showed me that um, the, the world just held possibilities that were mm -hmm. infinite if you were willing to go out and grab it. Mm -hmm. And it changed my relationship with how I perceive the world and how I engage with the world mm. came back, you know, finished university was working and went, this is just, this is not enough. Mm. It was such a small, small landscape that I felt that I was living in and amongst in Toronto back in the early nineties was still, and still is, but even then was far more conservative and, and um, one dimensional than what it is now. Mm -hmm. And I just chafed against that. Mm. And I needed more in my life. Mm. I needed adventure and I needed to, 
prove that I was capable of taking risks and felt that by taking a job teaching English in Japan, which is what I did, it was my way of moving myself over. And I remember someone saying to me, well, you'll be back in a year. And I said, I, I don't know. I said, because I think that one door will open. Like I am walking through a door yeah. and three doors will be there that I didn't know existed. So yeah. I said, I don't know if I'll be back in a year. I'm going to see how this changes my life. Wow. And it yeah. did. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I did know, obviously, that you um, you were teaching in Asia before for business school, but I didn't mm -hmm. know the backstory of the experience mm -hmm. in India with your with your uh parents and your uh, sister if we can just hang there for a little bit because I want to I want to roll around I want to roll around in that because yeah that was clearly um those were defining moments for very. the rest of your career very. your rest of your life very it rewired that, you a little bit it really rewired me it rewired me to see a multicultural world when I had grown up in a, in a very homogenous world. Yeah. Not because my parents had intended for that. They loved um, the multiculturalism of their lives. They had been raised in Montreal, which is where I was born. It was um, a lot of uh, Jewish friends, a lot of, um, and then when we moved to Richmond Hill, which is where I eventually grew up, uh, heavily Italian. Mm. And they loved the richness of different cultures and they welcomed that. Uh, mm -hmm. and, but of course, Richmond Hill is incredibly white. Yeah. And so me going to India literally blew my mind. Like mm. it literally changed in those six weeks I traveled around Asia. Um, it changed entirely how I saw the world and mm. my understanding of poverty and privilege mm. and white privilege. Mm -hmm. And um, and then as my father progressed in his career, and that's the reason they went to India in the first place, was to, to him advance at the global level, um, I saw the struggles he and my family went through, and I started to understand um, what was really important in life. Hmm. My dad had an emergency operation in England, and it was him, I remember saying, you know, it wasn't the CEO of the company there holding my hand, it was your mother. You know, it wasn't you know, the, the executives who were calling me every day, it was my brother. Yeah. Mm. And, and so I learned at a fairly young age, what to value. Mm. Um, but I also think it stripped away some of my ambition. Mm. Because I saw my dad being very ambitious, and going for it. And in the arc of his career, he ultimately came to a place where he realized what was really, really important. And so I was like, well, if at 20, I know that's really important, then how important is it to me to achieve? And that really played with my head for a long time. Right, right. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's so many threads here uh, <laughs> and to pull at. I, I, that's why I love these conversations so much. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever delved in and it's probably, I'm not sure if there's a lot of value here, but I'm just curious. You're in high school getting ready to graduate. Your parents pick up and leave to go to Calcutta, take your sister, leave you alone in the house mm -hmm. to, to graduate, <laughs> to pack up and to go off to university. Very different mm -hmm. experience than what most kids go through at that time. Mm -hmm. um, can I delve a little bit in what was going on in your family and what you were feeling and how you were dealing Was that? Was it an uh, enormous pressure on you at the time? 
The short answer is no, I was ready for it. My parents had raised my sister and I jokingly to say, when you're 19, you're out of the house. Like Uh adult children should never live with their parents. Yeah. Um, So you're either working and paying rent or you're in school and you're gone. Like as much as, again, there was tons of love and laughter in my family and still is, Mm -hmm. they raised my, they, they raised my sister and I to launch. And so when they were ironically leaving me instead of me leaving them, right. it was just a matter of months before I was going to be gone anyways. Yeah, yeah. And they had always raised me to be fiercely independent. Now my yeah. mom regrets it sometimes because it bites her in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was ready for it. Yeah, that's and actually I, so remarkable. Yeah, I had yeah. always been independent emotionally yeah. in many ways. Yeah. independent physically. I just hadn't learned how to be independent in my day to day, you know, and I was clearly ready for it. Not to say that there weren't, wow, roller coasters of emotions when I would see my cohorts go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, you know, right. I had to find my way through loneliness and um, becoming even more, I kind of doubled down on independence, which quite frankly is probably not always served me as an adult, but it it also gave me this incredible sense of being capable of Mm. no matter what life would throw at me. Mm. And I'm grateful to my parents for having raised me the way they did, but then also trusting me, believing that I was capable of what I ended up, you know, proving to be. But um, but it was very, very hard on the family, mm-hmm. more them, more them than me. I mean, I had the comforts of home. So you, you came back, you, you went to university, uh, you finished university, you get mm-hmm. into the working world. And because all of these subroutines have been planted in your brain, yeah. seeing poverty in India, understanding yeah. the purpose, experiencing your dad and in, in his dealing with his illness and the valuing over work relationships or the family relationships, mm-hmm. all that's in your brain now when you mm-hmm. go into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you decide that uh, it you were a little bit disillusioned, it sounds like, in the corporate world after having these subroutines planted. So what led you from that feeling to go and do your MBA? Because you might think that with that, you might choose a different path. But you double down on on business. I did. Um, you know, life sometimes looks well thought out until you unpack it, right? You yeah. start to realize how organic your decisions are along the way yeah. and the themes that you can follow um, over time. I had been in Asia for three years and I had hoped that I would have found something that lit me up. Yeah. I was looking for a job, a company, an industry that made me feel like this is what I want to sink my teeth into. Right. And I knew what that feeling was. I had been a competitive swimmer all my life. And so the, the, the sense of belonging and wanting to commit and be disciplined and, and achieve was very much how I was wired. But I had not found that in the jobs I had. I, I had um, worked at an American import company in Japan for a year. I moved to Australia and I did fundraising consulting. I moved to Singapore and I was doing the regional marketing for an international relocations company. Wow. I was having like incredible life experiences, but I wasn't finding a career. 
And so with my dad's input, I paused and said, how am I going to leap ahead? Because my, my cohorts now were moving ahead. They were advancing and I was stagnant. Yeah. And so education is often a way to regroup, right? Yeah, yeah. It's never going to be something you'll regret investing in yourself. And so I, I, for me, the MBA was a way to recalibrate and use it as a launching pad in a new direction. Mm. It was a way to invest in myself because I couldn't seem to find um, an industry or a company to do that for mm. me. So I had to do it for myself. And that that's the reason I, I chose an MBA. Yeah, so it was kind of like, you know, going off to Asia to see where it would lead. Let me go do my MBA and maybe that will spark something and it'll, it'll exactly. see where, where it leads. So each of these exactly. beginnings of these journeys didn't have in your mind a clear endpoint. You thought the end would be kind of awakened somewhere in the process. Is that <laughs> yeah, right? I wanted it to, uh, to be woke by the time I came to each one of these cycles and at no point did I, did I wake. I don't know yeah. what the term is, but it, my life has, my theme in life is endurance. Yeah. I am not a sprinter. What I've realized about me is it takes me a long time to come to clarity yeah. and um, have a vision. Yeah. And I've had to go through my life to get to a point where I finally have a vision. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a short-term thinker. I'm not a short-term player. I am a long game person. Yeah. Um, so all these experiences were necessary stepping stones to get to being 50 yeah. and now having a vision. So I, I love that because so much of um, where sometimes people get caught up is this pursuit of an outcome or a destination. You know, I talk to a lot of young people and in some ways I was probably like that in my late teens, this idea of you know, do this and then do that. And that's the plan. Uh, and I probably wasn't in, <laughs> until my 40s where I realized, hang on a second, the plan I had laid out for myself isn't really what makes me happy. Uh, and so then I circled back and said, really, I realize it's about the journey. And what are the things you pick up and, and, and little nuggets and ideas and experiences that end up interweaving themselves into your your persona along the journey and you figure that out pretty young well i would say this is part of the unpacking and reflection yeah i think i had instincts but i didn't understand it then and my biggest struggle was that i saw everyone around me with such focus and such purpose and i felt so unfocused mm. and without direction and I'm actually not that person inherently. I like a plan. I like a vision. I like a goal. I'm very goal oriented. I like a line in the sand. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my adulthood was really struggling to find um, clarity and purpose mm -hmm. when I thought everyone else had it. And in re upon reflection, what I've realized is, of course, you, people may start with a desirable outcome, but life doesn't always go the way you want it to. Right, right. And so my, my, I think one of my biggest learnings now and where I am in life is when I am around young people, my question isn't, what do you want to do? It's who yeah. do you want to be? Yeah. Because if you, I think we do such a disservice to young people when we corner them into trying to make career and life decisions at, at a young age where they, 
they may have instincts, but my goodness, we all know what life brings. Um, and I think the best thing that you can ask a young person is who do you want to be? And then when you it. make decisions based on those characteristics or those values, you're innately going to find what are you going to do? So it's not what are you going to do? It's not what are you going to have? Exactly. I, I was with a group of young people from U of T who were seeking career advice from people my age and far older. Yeah. And every, all the other, uh, let's call it the elders in the room, were talking about career and how you should focus on um, your education and, and steps to get to your career. And by the time they got to me, I was like, okay, A, how do I, everyone is now saying the same thing. I'm not going to add any value if I say that. But also I, I kept looking at these young people thinking, oh my God, they're 18 and 19 and 20. And yeah. all we're doing is barking orders at them on how to build a career. And I thought that's, I'm not sure. Some people will latch on to do to, to those messages and do very well with them. Yeah. But I realized what I wanted to do was challenge them to think about who, who they wanted to be. And so that was what I brought to the table. And the, and it was, you know, do you want to, do you want to be um, a risk taker? Do you want to have adventures? Do you want to be um, solitary or in a pack, you know? Mm -hmm. um, do you want to see the world? Are you content to be in your hometown? Like, what is the life you want? And as you start to decide what the life you want is, then you will start to make decisions based on knowing who you are. You will choose people or you should be choosing people who are mirror those values back yeah. to you. Yeah. So they reinforce your appetite for risk or um, entrepreneurialism or you know growth. But if that's not you, then choose the people who are going to give you the comfort of, of choosing a different type of life. And I think your career can come out of that instead of the reverse. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, connecting all this back to the relationships in your life, where you have choices, surround yourself with people that will align with who you want to be and not with people who you think you should be um, uh, based on kind of the rules written for you, in fact. Yeah, uh, you know, the arbitrary rules that everybody tells you. I mean, you yeah. and I have had some interesting conversations about leadership, and yeah. I feel that we are a more modern leader of leading yeah. with values and vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and it's taken me a long time to grow into that position because it's not the norm. Yeah. Um, and so if I'd always stayed with what the norm is, I would have had a very different life. Right. And, and I would not have been true to myself. Yeah. And it's still a struggle sometimes when sure. you're in a, an environment where who I am may be a little more bold or a little more uh, risque yeah. or uh, brash than what who I'm surrounded by. But what I've realized is the people that I attract are the people that I want to spend my time with. Yeah. You know, people who I want to be loyal to and are who are loyal to me. And this is not just professionally, but friends, you know, friendships, rich, rich friendships I have because they value my truth and my honesty. Yeah. And I value theirs and their humor, you know, yeah. your ability to laugh, yeah. I think is one of the key things that I've had to learn too. Well, well, Jen, I mean, I, I, I won't be telling you anything you don't know, although I might um, make you a little uh, uncomfortable or blush, but 
it does um, come through for sure. And it stands the test of time. Like I said, you know, we, we were in the same section in business school and you just exuded warmth and authenticity and confidence. Uh, you were, I, I even still remember exactly where you sat in our first, uh, <laughs> first term. And you, you, there was a bit of a center of energy there even though um, you weren't your typical type A mm. business student. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder when you came and did your MBA, you were in the class experience, what, was your, what were you processing as you oh were seeing God. all this happen around you? Pretty it's intense environment. Yeah. yeah, lots of A types, lots of uh, people who are competitive. Although I, I, I was very grateful that I, although I found people to be very smart and hardworking, there was a real, for the most part, there was a real sense of collaboration and humility that people brought. I mean, we weren't babies, although we were the average age, I think was 28 in first year. We were still young enough to be shaped and informed, but old enough to understand that teamwork was really important. I often felt that I was not, I don't know if the caliber is the right word, but I knew I wasn't going to be in finance. I knew I wasn't going to be in, in top tier consulting. That wasn't what I was gearing for. Right. And so people who came in with that incredible focus were slightly intimidating to me, mm -hmm. but I was learning so much and I love learning. I've, mm -hmm. I didn't know it then, but I'm definitely a lifelong learner. I'm extremely curious and I love to be around people who challenge how I think. Mm -hmm. And so I was, very happy being in those classrooms. Mm -hmm. But I did have a moment and I remember exactly where I was sitting and this moment where I looked around and I went, oh, I'm not like you people. <laughs> I, it's like I finally got that I was wired differently. Yeah. And I realized I wasn't yearning for a title or a business card that I could slickly hand to somebody. I wasn't driven by money. But I didn't know what I was driven by. Yeah. I still hadn't figured out what my motivators were in a corporate setting, yeah. like in, as a profession. But I did know that I thought differently and I felt differently in the world than a lot of the people around me. But I, again, this goes back to like, I had just come off of three years traveling around Asia and working and moving myself to countries where I didn't have any, I didn't know anybody. I didn't yeah. have a network. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a job and I had to land and figure it out. And I did that three times. Um, I knew who I was and I'd seen some real hardship in those 10 years, you know, of teenagehood into um, MBA. And I kind of felt like I, my metal had been tested. Mm -hmm. And so if I was giving off confidences, because as much as I didn't know what my profession was, I knew who I was. Mm -hmm. And I, I was committed to staying true to that, even yeah. if um, the culture around me was a little bit more formal. Mm. Got it. I remember um, you, you also had this, that confidence led to your ability to, to come in with such interesting comments during various cases, 
And, you know, the personal and the business kind of came together. So I remember, and I won't name names of the other individual, but we were discussing Starbucks was just kind of coming out, coming to Eastern uh, Canada at that time. We were doing a case. I think it was a case on Starbucks in strategy class. And we were talking about, you know, Starbucks in bookstores and encouraging people to linger in bookstores and read and, and take all day if they wanted to leaf through magazines, which was very different at that time, uh, you know, to encourage people to leaf through magazines in your bookstore and hang around all day drinking coffee and working on your computer was unusual. And so um, I remember you saying something like you didn't, you didn't see the appeal at the time of sitting all day in a coffee shop or in a bookstore. It just didn't seem like a warm thing to do. And our classmate said, Jen, you have to see this location. It's in Toronto on, on Bay Street. And it's this beautiful place with beautiful couches. Mm -hmm. And you wanna hang out and stay there all day. It's really a great atmosphere to go to. And he was very passionate. And you turned around and said to him, goes, uh, are you asking me out? <laughs> said that like he was trying to impress you with this wonderful place that, <laughs> that you could go and then you kind of come in with this remark and you know it was just an awesome moment and everybody started laughing and it was a joke and kind of cut the tension of the debate I don't know where the professor could go from there but it was really <laughs> a great moment <laughs> well that goes back to humor right yeah. and um showing your colors. Yeah, I loved it. Anyway, yeah. I don't know if that'll mean anything so to the listeners, but for me, it was a really, <laughs> really wonderful memory, which, um, because there were intense moments in debates. Yes, yes. In that class, there were some serious discussions. We talked, I remember a case where we talked about, um, you know, vaccine uh, and African river blindness and uh, were the pharmaceutical companies doing enough, even though there wasn't a re real big payback to solve the problem of river blindness in, in, in Africa. Uh, some pretty intense that. conversations. Yeah. So you graduated. Um, did you feel like you found your purpose at the point of graduation? Did you, Not did at you all. know what you wanted to do then? I still didn't. Um, what I did know is I had a real entrepreneurial bent, yeah. but I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, I ended up being very lucky getting a contract with CIBC. Okay. In, in a startup at CIBC, which is you know pretty unusual for mm -hmm. a big bank. And I did that for a while on and off with some contracts. It ended up turning into a full-time gig. And to be really honest, being at a big bank and working in what was the small business marketing area was like literally like my soul was just shriveling mm -hmm. up. But I felt that after my very nomadic life until then, I had to prove that I was capable of sticking mm. and learning and getting through the mundacity of the day-to-day, -day, which I find very hard and still do. Um, but what came out of it was my introduction to corporate social responsibility, okay. because at the time, CIBC was probably the best-known company for its commitment to breast cancer through the right. CIBC run for the cure. Yeah. And I saw, I had this moment where I, I started to understand how authentic CIBC's commitment to that cause was, how it was able to rally 40,000 employees across Canada, how it made an impact 
to the charity it was partnered with and the team that supported all of that. And I approached them and said, I think I want to do this. Like, I think Mm -hmm. this is where I need to be. And they came back to me a few months later and said, we're hiring. Would you be interested in interviewing? And I threw my hat in the ring and I got the job. Wow. And um, I still remember like best day of my life to transition over to that. Yeah. Wave bye-bye to my my marketing cohorts, suckers, <laughs> <laughs> like ran over. And, uh, you know, I, that's where I cut my teeth on a blue chip property. Yeah. And um, I actually was hired at Indigo to build their corporate foundation, largely on my experience at CIBC. So there's a great example of sticking with something that yeah. in the moment doesn't look like it's going to lead anywhere. Yeah. But had I left CIBC prematurely, I wouldn't have been exposed to the CSR. And, and that moment changed the rest of my career. It, it's what, where I realized I could do something that is a perfect blend of my head and my heart because yeah. it was still all corporate strategy. Yeah. It's just the output was different. Yeah. And that melding of the two was what lit me up. And I've never looked back. So interesting because you had you have the presence of mind and self-awareness to go back and look at that time in doing a job that you didn't like, you didn't enjoy, mm-hmm. but recognize that that job is what got you to mm-hmm. what has now become the rest of your career in, mm-hmm. in uh, not-for-profit, cause-related work so for so so run for the cure which absolutely Mm -hmm. is kind of one of the most highly respected regarded uh Mm -hmm. fundraising peer-to-peer fundraising campaigns i worked in nonprofit running a walk uh uh, a walk for the foundation that i was working for and we always look to cibc run for the (laughs) cure for inspiration and if they were doing it and we were doing it, we felt really good that, that right. oh yeah, we're, we're doing the same thing that, that CIBC Run for the Cure was doing, including right. our fundraising platform. And so uh, so that led you to in, uh, Indigo. Indigo reading, love of reading, mm-hmm. led you to uh, the, the Toronto the Library. Public Library Foundation. Yeah. Oh man, just so interesting putting those pieces and, and never, Yeah, never would I have known this is where I would end up. Yeah. Um, never would I have called myself ambitious, quite frankly. It, for me, it always chafed against my sense of altruism yeah. until something changed in my l- late 30s, early 40s. And I started to realize that I actually was a lot more ambitious than I had admitted to myself. And I had to, to let go of what I um, believed ambition meant. Mm. You know, I, I always thought as being like a someone that made me very uncomfortable because they were <clears throat> let's let's take a black and white you know point of view greedy yeah. um cutthroat competitive cruel um you know selfish all those things what i saw ambition as being very unappealing yeah. until i started seeing a lot of my friends who i admired greatly achieve and be ambitious. And I started to realize it was something that I could own too. I just had to find my own comfort with what ambition meant for me. Right. And that's when everything changed too. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing that happens as you get older, you realize that there really is no one definition for, for any word really. Right. Right. (laughs) You just have to find a world that makes sense to you and then be comfortable in it. Absolutely. So you have to, yeah, it, and that 
that for me takes time. It doesn't, it, I'm not someone who wakes up and just knows, you yeah. know, clearly there's, I've had to grow into the person that I am. Yeah, yeah. Well, welcome to the human race. We're all, I know, right? we're all doing that. And it's so <laughs> but funny. But everyone how... else always seems so self-possessed. Yeah. <laughs> that I always was like, how come they figured it out? How come I'm still struggling? Why yeah. do they have the answers? And I'm like sitting going, I have no clue, you know? And and I I think because all the adults, no one, no one, and perhaps they did and I just couldn't see it, but I never felt like anyone was as vulnerable as I needed people to be to give me the comfort to admit that I didn't know mm. um, that takes, it takes confidence and strength to be able to admit you don't know, or you are lost or you need help. Um, and I had to learn very painfully how to do all that. Yeah. I wish I had had people who could have made it more obvious to me that that's actually how you succeed in life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you say, you say that, and I often say that too. I wish I did this. I wish I knew this earlier. Mm. But the truth of the matter is all of those journeys and experiences and struggles and stresses and anxieties all contributed to the journey. <laughs> no, it damn all, it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like you can rationalize every bit of pain so, because it made you who you yes, are. <laughs> absolutely. I 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is what, she, well, it either, you know, the saying, what doesn't kill you, make you stronger. Um, which I freaking hate that saying because, yeah. you know, it's true. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I, I went through, I went through a period of time that was exceptionally difficult. And someone was like, you know, gave me that saying, I was like, well, I got fucking Stelco stamped on the back of my spine. So like <laughs> get in line, but that's really how I felt. I was like, how much more can life throw at me? Yeah. Yeah. And it once again taught me how strong I am and what I'm capable yeah. of. Yeah. And every time I learn that, it makes me realize that I will always be okay, no matter yeah. what life brings. I love it. And that's that, a good feeling. That, yeah, that's, you know, really, really wonderful way of looking at it. It's so interesting. And, and I've talked about this on previous episodes of mine about this professor from Ivy that talks about now is a time for leaders that are both Hercules and Buddha at the same time. And it's so, I mean, this is exactly what you're talking about. The ability to be ambitious and driven, but also be vulnerable and authentic and celebrating our flaws and our weaknesses and, and being that for each other. That's what you're epitomizing here. And so interesting that you've had that experience living, working in Asia uh, and those cultures, mm -hmm. and then the experience working in corporate Canada in banking, bringing <laughs> that all together. So mm -hmm. you've basically been preparing all your life to be both Hercules and Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, that. So what, what, what next, like in the, for, for you, for the world, for the foundation? I mean, those are big questions, I know, but we've yeah. just gone through this period. You said that um, because of your great supporters, uh, it hasn't been as bad as it could have been for the Toronto Public Library Foundation. What is going on there right now? Well, we, first of all, I have an amazing team. Mm -hmm. I've been very blessed that I was able to build a team that I have a lot of faith and trust in. And mm -hmm. together we work very harmoniously. Um, and my job as the leader through all of this has been to set a clear vision mm -hmm. and to be, you know, the moral compass for everybody, if you will, mm -hmm. to stay on track and not get distracted or disheartened. Mm -hmm. And my team has really risen to the occasion. 
Um, but we couldn't have done that without the support of our board and our donors who really believe in the work that the library does. And more than ever, the library is needed. I mean, it, it over 70% of Toronto uses the library and a lot of those people are vulnerable citizens. Mm -hmm. And without the library's uh, resources, whether it's technology or programming or materials, a lot of those people um, don't have access to what they need to succeed, not even succeed, but just to survive. Mm -hmm. And that message has been one that we've, we've really advocated for the last few years. Um, it's truly one of our responsibilities is to advocate and champion for the library, in addition to the fundraising role of it, because they go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm grateful that our donors have not just stepped, you know, um, stood by the library, but actually stepped up. Mm -hmm. Now, 2021, I think is going to be perhaps even harder in some ways. People are tired. There's going to be corporate layoffs. Uh, there's mm -hmm. going to be, you know, more, um, fiscal and financial instability um it's gonna be tough i think yeah. our job as leaders is to um be very comfortable with the gray yeah and somehow still create comfort and clarity of purpose and goals even when everything is a little fuzzy so you you rely as as do most charities you rely heavily on you know, the corporate sector and working professionals to mm -hmm. make financial contributions and those contributions you use to actually help the most vulnerable, make sure there's access to services, uh, all sorts of media Absolutely. to people. And right now, those people that are the most vulnerable need it the most. They're isolated. Exactly. They need the engagement. They need the learning. So that's the vicious cycle that goes into 2021 as people yes. laid off and corporations don't have the funding to fund it. You're in a more difficult position to help the people that really that's need right. the help. It, it's the irony of charities at the time right. that when people need us the most, the, the money is, is drying up more quickly than ever. Yeah. Um, and I'm grateful again, because of the library and, and the cohort, like the, the reach that we have in Toronto is broad and it's diverse. Um, but it's not just our charity that is facing this. It's, it's every charity. And, um, you know, the federal government has gotten involved in different areas um, mm -hmm. to try and lift it up, buoy it. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, you know, it's going to be some trying times for a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even and corporate, they're changing strategies. And, yeah. you know, it's been really interesting to talk to some of the big, the big um, supporters that we have and where they are strategically from a community investment point of view and how they're starting to rethink if their original investment pillars are where they want to be in the future. Yeah. So it's this odd time leading, leading a charity like you are, the organization I just left, where mm -hmm. at the same time, you've got to do less and control your costs mm -hmm. and do more uh, because there's greater need for your services, a really challenging yeah. time. And, uh, What's what's floating around in your head right now on how to how to tackle that one? Do you have any thoughts or or because I'm sure there'll be other people struggling with the exact same thing. We're only going to get through it if we share perspectives. What's on your mind on the how of doing less and more at the same time? I I think the the less and more is interesting. I'm going to take a moment there because 
in the early 90s, back to the recession that I started my career in, I had so many people saying, oh, you should have been here a couple of years ago when the parties were off the hook, you know, because yeah. budgets were so big. I've never experienced that. Yeah. My entire career has been about reduced budgets, but yet you still have to do more. Right. I think it's so there's a bit of a mentality of, well, here we go again. Yeah. Right. One more time. We just have to squeeze the stone even harder. Yeah. But uh, when you have the right people to problem solve, there's always a solution. And it's one of my guiding principles with myself professionally, personally. And when I lead a team, I'm very clear. I have four guiding principles. And one of them is there's always a way to get to yes. Yeah. There's always a solution. It may take longer. Yeah. You may have to come at it differently. You may need different stakeholders at the table, but there's always a way to get to yes. And in our case, in every case, no matter what brand you're representing, corporate or not-for-profit, it's about storytelling. It's about making sure that you are saying the right thing to the right audience at the right time so that it compels them to take the action that you need them to take. Yeah. And, um, you know, the library has a great story. And because yeah. of COVID and their response to it, it's actually provided us with a bit of a silver platter yeah. of, of possibilities that we didn't have even before. Yeah. Um, so again, it's about resource allocation. You know, it's about compelling storytelling. Yeah. Um, it's just about being super, super efficient. Yeah. And there's ROI and there's what we call ROE, which is return on effort. So it's yeah. not just, you know, it's also like if you have a smaller team than ever before, you know, where are you going to put our, our time and energy, not just yeah. our, our, you know, investment. I, I always used to say, I had a small team as well, is that knowing what you're going to say no to is as important as knowing what you're going to say yes to. In Correct. fact, probably sometimes more important Yes. than knowing that. Because there's yes. always stuff you can do and your, your donors, your supporters, all people are happy to tell you things they want you to do. I know. But the choice of what to say no to is really Correct. important. It, I, I agree. And walking away from money sometimes because the money comes with um, not the right objectives or purpose. Yeah. And it can um, pervert a, yeah. a, a corporate or a charity's mission. You yeah. know? So you, you do, you have to be very thoughtful about yeah. how you step into the world. Yeah. You know? Difficult you choices. Diffic I, I, I thought when I entered the nonprofit space, I have to say I came in you know, I've tried not to, I've tried to stay humble, although I'm sure I failed many times in my, in my career. When I came into the nonprofit sector and I was going through the interview process, I did come in with a little bit, hey, I've had some pretty cool career experiences, mm -hmm. worked in corporate, run businesses, run this, you know, been a management consultant, you know, CEOs, listen to me. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be great. You know, I'll get to give back all the stuff I learned. And I had this moment of interview with the CEO who also came from a very um, uh, blue chip background. He was a, he was a, a, a McKinsey before he mm -hmm. ran the organization. And he said to me, you know, there's nothing in your resume that tells me you're prepared for the complexity of what this work might bring. And, you know, he was, we were, he was dropping me to the airport. And I was like looking at him and basically saying out loud, uh, I just have to trust you on that because you know more than I do about this world. But in the back of my head, I was saying, really, come on, sure, come on. <laughs> and then I have to tell you, I started the job and day one, it was eight o'clock at night in my office. Everybody else had gone. I was looking out the window and 
one of my senior volunteers called me on the phone that day to say welcome. He and he asked me the question, so have you figured out how hard this is going to be yet? And I was like, absolutely. After a day of catching up on emails and looking, I was like, he was right. Nothing has prepared me for this moment of it's, the complexity of the nonprofit world. Yeah, I think uh, I certainly hear of a number of corporate leaders who come over with um, that, let's call it confidence. Yeah. That um, often leads to failure. Yeah. Because there isn't enough humility to learn. Yeah. And it chafes, obviously, people who are in this industry because of the passion and the commitment to it. And they want people to share that passion and commitment and lift them up. Um, I I was lucky, although I came from the corporate world, I had been transitioning to the social responsibility for so long that I had been working with enough charities over time that I I had um, an appropriate level, I I think, I hope, of confidence mixed with the humility of understanding how much I still had to learn. But that's also what appealed to me, right? I wanted to learn, I wanted to grow. I don't like being the the smartest person in the room. That's not interesting to me. I want people to challenge me. And listen, the library has challenged me in many, many ways. Um, And I think more than ever though, the not-for-profit space still really would benefit from more corporate leaders coming over who can come with, the smarts, but yeah. the heart yeah. to be able to deliver the smarts. Yeah. Well, I would say my first six months were extremely painful, but man, so humbling. And I'm yeah. so grateful for that experience. Painful six months of learning and growth and change and humbling was really remarkable and did actually change my perspective on, on the world and people. Uh, I want to pull together some things that both you and I have been saying this last several minutes. Mm-hmm. When I asked you the question about kind of what does the future hold doing less and more, you didn't come with an answer. You described as a leader how you need to uh, stimulate innovation, creativity, sharing of ideas, and hope that we will find the answer. But I don't have it. And let's be clear. It's about us coming to that answer together and we together. together. I agree. It's not, listen, if I had an answer, I'd be far richer than I really am, right? Like yeah. it's, it's not about me having an answer. I don't, especially under the conditions we're in. Do I, do I have ideas of where I think we're going to see social change, of how I think organizations are going to respond to that need corporately as well as not-for-profits? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but I think the what I've learned over time is good ideas come from anywhere and the right leader, the good leaders create a space for those ideas to bubble up. Yeah. Um, and so my job isn't to always have the answers, but it's to ask the questions and it. have the right people in the room to, to find the answers together. Absolutely. And truthfully, that's what is so rewarding. You know, I've won as an individual in sports and professionally and in life. Yeah. And I've won as a team in sports and professionally in life. And there's nothing like winning as a team. Yeah. And that's always my preference. And so it's about, it goes back to who do you want to be, yeah. you know, and what do I want from my life? I want to surround myself with people um, that make me a better person. And I yeah. choose my colleagues because not because we have the same life experiences, shared values, I think is very important, but I want people to come with different 
life experiences, everything we've just talked about. So they can represent different cultures and communities and academia and corporate and life experience. So together we're stronger. Yes. We've had such an incredible conversation. I'm very grateful, uh, Jen, to you, not just for this last hour that we spent together, but you know the journey of life and the people that come along your way, as brief as it might have been in the course of our lives, I'm very grateful that you crossed my path uh, and you sat to my left in that classroom and I got to see your reactions to different ideas and got to know you a little bit and I'm grateful for you. Thank you, Jen. Oh, well, I have always taken very, a lot of comfort that you're in the world and over time seeing your leadership and how you have navigated your career with such um, gratitude and ease and humility has inspired me to, to double down on how I think we should also be, um, you know, engaging with the world. Thank you, I, Jen. I don't take that for granted. Thank you, Jen. And I, I look forward to staying in touch. Likewise. Thank okay. you, Shirakil. So that was a deep conversation. And here's what I took away from it. First of all, Jen was very self-aware that her experiences as an adolescent and a young adult and the things she saw as she was um, starting to experience life in her career rewired her brain, right? The trip to India, uh, the trip to Asia, and the things she saw along the way. I picked up that it rewired her brain to the point that it actually made it difficult for her to find her path for meaning. But she never gave up the search for clarity. For a big part of her life, she, in her words, chafed at the word ambitious as something that she did not want to be for all the negative connotations that it held. But then later in life, she embraced ambition. She unlearned her previous definition and crafted a new version of ambition that felt right for her. In her search at specific moments when she needed inspiration, she would shake things up and create uncertainty for herself. But she had the faith that she would find the clarity she needed in the process of working through that uncertainty. But she also learned that times of boredom and frustration can be transition points to great discoveries. Sometimes it can be tempting to run away from those circumstances of boredom and frustration. But then if she didn't sit in it for a while, sit in those circumstances, she wouldn't have discovered her life's work. And she's taken all those experiences and put them together in some great advice for young people. And I would say advice for parents helping young people as well. Don't focus on what you want to do. Focus on who you want to be. And when you define who you want to be, it helps you make choices about what you do, who you spend time with, and what you spend your time learning. I thought that was great advice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, or share it. I want to say thank you to one of my favorite bands, Late Night Conversations, for sharing their song Chaos with me and letting me use it in this episode. You can learn more about them on Instagram at LNC Connected. And here's more of their song Chaos to take you out.
or far behind my eyes. Mediation, suffocation, it'll break me. Information in the sky.